I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we make our way uh, through this letter. Uh, I'd like to read to us, beginning in verse 18, down to the end of the chapter. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and, sanct and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. And it is indeed the power of God unto salvation. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, begins his letter uh, by giving thanks, but then immediately jumps into addressing the first serious issue that is going on in the church, and that issue is the problem of division. There were people who were choosing various uh, preachers and leaders within the church and giving exclusive loyalty to them. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Others were saying, I follow Apollos. And they were claiming these leaders as if, uh, as if they uh, had exclusive loyalty to them. And to this division that was arising within the church, Paul asks the rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Obviously, no. And so the answer and the implication should be, well, neither should his body, that is, the church. The church should not be divided because her Lord is not divided. And he goes on to highlight that Christ is, the, is alone, the Savior of the church. He alone was crucified for us. He alone was raised for our justification. He alone is the only king and head of his church. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter. No other mere man leads the church but Christ alone. Now he'll go on in chapter 3 to discuss how foolish it is 
to pit somebody like Paul against somebody like Apollos. After all, they are not competitors, but they are on the same team. They are fellow laborers laboring on, on behalf of the Lord. It's ultimately the Lord who's giving the increase and building his church. But for right now, in, uh, for the rest of chapter 1, and actually for the rest of chapter 2, Paul wants to focus upon the content and the proclamation of the gospel. How it is that uh, the message of salvation is ultimately the power of God. It is this that the Apostle Paul says he's been called to do. The Lord Jesus Christ personally commissioned him to proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And the Apostle Paul insists that the content of the gospel must be front and center, not his rhetoric, not words of eloquent wisdom, not like the professional speakers that made a, 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 a name for themselves in the ancient world. Paul says, no, the message of the gospel needs to be front and center. You see, he's not going to play the game that the, the rhetoricians of, of his day would do as they tried to use persuasive reason or eloquence in order to convince the, their hearers. He says, no, it's simply the message, the simple proclamation of the gospel, which in verse 18 he calls the word of the cross. You see, it's the content of the gospel as it is proclaimed. And that's why I like the way the King James translates this verse, it's the preaching of the cross. Not just the content, but also the proclamation. You see, it, and, and when he talks about the, the preaching of the cross, he's not talking just about the narrow topic of the atonement, the crucifixion of Christ and, and its implications, but rather, by way of synecdoche, he's referring to the entire message of the gospel. Using part for the whole, he's referring to not just the death of Christ, but also his life and his resurrection, including our union together with him. All of that is summarized as the preaching of the cross. His life, his death, his resurrection, and our union together with him. And he says that this message, as it is proclaimed, is folly to those who are dying, to those who are perishing, to a lost and dying world, the idea that somehow the crucifixion, which is the most shameful way to die in the ancient world, that somehow this shameful death of a Jewish rabbi down in Palestine is God's message of salvation is literally moronic. That's the word he uses here. It is moronic to those who are perishing. Especially when that message, that proclamation that Christ crucified is salvation, especially when that's followed with the message, now take up your cross and follow after him. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, after he talked about his impending death and resurrection, he says, now if you want to follow after me, take up your cross. You see, especially in an ancient world where people based all of their decisions upon what others think about them. You see, the, their decision-making uh, process went like this. Will this act bring me honor, or will it bring me shame? That's how they based all of their decisions. And so somehow the message that uh, a Jewish rabbi dying a shameful death is the power of God to salvation, is the road to glory through suffering, that made absolutely no sense in the ancient world. And it makes no sense in our world today as well. 
And this message of a crucified Christ was particularly offensive to the Jews. You see, the Jews assumed that their Messiah would be a mighty warrior, would be one who would overthrow the Roman occupiers and bring and establish a kingdom of glory, not, not be tortured by the Romans and die a shameful death. This is particularly offensive. It's, it's a stumbling block, particularly to the Jews. But as Paul says, to those who are being saved, that is, those who hear that message and embrace it by faith, we find that that is the power of God unto salvation. And Paul supports this idea by quoting, introducing his first Old Testament quote, a quote from Isaiah chapter 29, where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. If you have time on your own to go back and read Isaiah 29, you'll find out that it's actually a prophecy of judgment upon Israel. Israel, and especially the, uh, the men of Judah dwelling in Jerusalem, as they gathered to the temple, you see, they were simply going through the motions. They were relying upon themselves and their own wisdom in order to bring prosperity. And yet Isaiah, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, brings them a message of impending judgment because they weren't ultimately worshiping God from the heart. And so he says, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is, is a commandment taught by men, see, not from God, but from man, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. You see, the Apostle Paul tells us that that thing of wonder, that wonder upon wonder that the Lord said he would do, was to send his son as a suffering servant in order to subvert the so-called wisdom that the Israelites prided themselves upon. And you'll notice that Paul actually changes the last word in this quotation. It's not that just that the discernment will be hidden from the people. Literally, it will be thwarted. It will be turned on its head. That somehow the message of a suffering servant can bring the salvation of his people. That's turned on its head. And so Paul then goes on to invite his readers in Corinth to look for the wise. To look for the scribe. To look for the debater of this age. You may recall from last week that Corinth was a town that was filled with those who sought to use words of eloquent wisdom in order to impress others and gain a following. These so-called sophists were professional rhetoricians who would debate each other and gain a following and, and have their own schools of disciples who would dress like them and walk like them and talk like them. And so the Apostle Paul now challenges his audience to try to find these guys in light of the cross. In light of that message of salvation that they have embraced, where are they? They're nowhere to be found. They are nowhere to be found. Now it's important to keep in mind that the Apostle Paul here, when he talks about the wisdom of the world, it's important to keep in mind that Paul is not condemning wisdom or rhetoric or what we might call philosophy per se. What he is combating here is this particular form of rhetoric that valued style over substance and was used by these men for the purpose of self-promotion in order to gain status 
and glory for oneself. These guys were the rock stars of their age. And, and what was particularly impressive amongst these sophists was uh, in order to just uh, have some, somebody in the crowd to call out a particular topic. And this sophist would be able to uh, use uh, eloquence and rhetoric in order to convince his audience, arguing either side of the issue. You see, truth at the end of the day, substance at the end of the day, did not matter. It was simply impressing his, audi his audience and gaining uh, a, a following. And so it's not rhetoric per se, it's the use of the rhetoric in order to gain status and glory for oneself. And so ultimately, this is a, different, a fundamentally different theology. This is what Martin Luther later on would call a theology of glory. In order to, uh, the theology of glory says that we as humans, through our own might, through our own ingenuity, through our own good works or wisdom, can obtain glory for ourselves. Martin Luther contrasted that theology of glory with what he called the theology of the cross. That that alone is the power of God. That you only save yourself through losing yourself. As Jesus says, those who want to save their lives will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospels, you will gain it. So that's why the Apostle Paul goes on to highlight the limitations of human wisdom. As he says in, uh, in verse 21, uh, that the, the world, through its wisdom, did not know God. Here he highlights the, the, the limitations of human wisdom as, as, as valuable as, as uh, reading philosophers, whether you read Aristotle or Plato or, or whomever, as valuable as they are, at the end of the day, they cannot point you to a knowledge of God as your Lord and Savior. Apart from God's special revelation, you cannot know him through Jesus Christ. This uh, wisdom of the world, as Paul says, says elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, is enough to know that there is a God. See, the philosophers knew that God existed. They knew that he was good, that he was powerful, that he was just, and that we're not him. That's basically what the wisdom of the world will get you with regard to a knowledge of God. And yet it's just enough to leave you without excuse. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.21. They know God. They know his power, his divine nature, so that they're without excuse. That's the limitation of human wisdom. You do not come to know God as your only blessedness and reward in the school of Athens. You only come to know God through Jesus Christ, through the preaching of the cross. And so in God's infinite wisdom, fallen man would never be able through their own insight to know him as their blessedness and reward, but only through the foolishness of preaching the gospel. If you think about this, I mean, you just really stop and think. You, are, you have wasted your time today to be here. You've, you've spent time, you got dressed. Uh, you're, you're, there's plenty of other things that you could be doing in this world than hearing somebody preach about a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago. In the world's eyes, that is complete folly. It is utter nonsense, and yet this is the way in which we come to know God. This is the power of God. And so Paul then goes on to talk about the, 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 the ways in which this is viewed as folly. As he says in verse 22, the Jews demand signs. It is true that Christ and the apostles did perform signs. We read about that in the Gospels and in Acts. 
They perform signs which serve to validate their message. The Holy Spirit uh, accompanying the preaching of the gospel through signs and wonders to show that their message was in fact from God. But you see, the signs that Jesus and later on the apostles performed, things like healing people or, or casting out demons or feeding the multitudes, these were not the types of signs that the opponents of Jesus were expecting. These were not the type of signs that they wanted the Messiah, the Christ, to be performing. You see, they wanted to see signs of power. They wanted to see Jesus calling down fire from heaven upon the Romans. Not healing their their sick daughter, who's about to die. And that's why the scribes and the Pharisees constantly go to Jesus, and they would demand him to perform a sign. And Jesus would never perform a, a sign on demand to these people who ultimately weren't seeking him through faith. That's why he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What sign does he point to? His death, the cross, the message of the cross, which ultimately is folly to them. And and then the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. They seek after uh, winning friends and and, and having influence, of making money and gaining uh, power for themselves. You see, it just was not the pursuit of knowledge, but it was knowledge for the purpose of self-promotion and glory. And so at the end of the day, what the Greeks were seeking and what the Jews were seeking were the same thing, power and glory for themselves. And so that's why the Apostle Paul goes on to say this so-called foolishness of God, or even the so-called weakness of God, as, as it is revealed through Jesus Christ, through his humiliation, suffering, and obedience. This is more powerful. It's wiser than, what, than, than the best of anything that human, humankind can muster. So then to confirm what he's saying, he asks his Congregation, he asks his listening audience to look around and to consider the makeup of their church in order to confirm this idea. In verse 26, he says, Consider your calling. And when he talks about your calling, he's referring here to the sovereign and effectual call of God through the preaching of the gospel. This is what he mentioned previously when he says, I thank God for the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus, and later on, in chapter 2, we'll talk about how uh, we, uh, the Spirit enables us to embrace the gospel. When, when the call goes out through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit creates faith in the hearts of the listeners. And so in that sense, they are effectually called. And so them becoming Christians and becoming part of the covenant community, the Apostle Paul could uh, names their calling. Look around, he says. The fact is, not many within the church of Corinth were wise according to the flesh. Now, again, he's not insulting their intelligence. This is the the wisdom of the age that he's talking about. This is the the use of rhetoric in order to uh, 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 to gain power. Not many of them were followers of these so-called sophists. Not many were powerful. That is, they didn't have government positions. They didn't have earthly authority. Not many were of noble birth. It's interesting, not many at all in the city of Corinth were of noble birth. 
As we saw, it was sort of a, a, a new a Roman colony, relatively recent, and most of the people who moved to Corinth were there to make a name for themselves. Uh, those who had either gained, uh, uh, got money, or had uh, gained their freedom, they moved to Corinth to make a new name for themselves. So you don't have many uh, uh, families, no, no uh, families of nobility there dwelling in Corinth, and yet, for those who had money, they wanted to pretend like they did. You see, these ideas, wisdom, power, and noble birth, these are the characteristics that the world values. It's interesting, that idea of noble birth being valued by the world. Who has control of who their parents are? As if that's something to be proud of, that you were born in nobility. You had no control over that. And yet the world values these things. And it's interesting that the sophists actually marketed themselves to the rich and the powerful. It was those families that had money who had their sons go to these schools in order to learn how to be persuasive and and, and to gain glory for themselves. And yet the Apostle Paul says, look around. You don't see many of those people in the church. So often I think we're tempted to think it would be great if we could get a rich or famous or powerful person in the church. The Church of Scientology has Tom Cruise. Who do we got? I mean, especially when you look at the OPC. We got nothing. And yet we think, oh, it'd be fantastic if we can get a rich, powerful, or famous person. That would be so great for the cause of the gospel. And even in broad evangelical circles, what happens when a famous person converts? Or when a famous person says that they're a Christian? Immediately thrust into the spotlight, whether they're prepared for it or not. And we think, oh, that's great. So many people will be converted. That's not how God works. He does not use the power or wisdom or rhetoric of this age in order to gain his people. As Jesus tells his disciples in Mark chapter 10, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A servant is not greater than his master if our Lord Jesus Christ did not come to be served. How much more we should not assume positions of power in order to promote the gospel. Now notice Paul says not many of you were wise or powerful or of noble birth. That means there were some within the church, a small minority, men such as Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, or, or Gaius, or Chloe, who had people, right? Or, or Erastus, who was the, the city clerk. These people did have positions of authority and power within the city, so there's nothing wrong with using those things for good. But as Paul will go on, even their status is no ground for boasting before the Lord. And so we should not rely upon our own power or strength in light of, of the, uh, in light of the uh, presence of the Lord, but rather boast in him alone. So Paul goes on to show how God works. He doesn't use the, wiz- the wise. He doesn't use the powerful. He doesn't use those of noble birth. But he uses the foolish. He uses the weak. He uses the low and despised of the world, which ultimately Paul sums all up in in the things that are not. 
the nothings, the nobodies. That's the, those are the people that the Lord is pleased to use in order to shame, in order to undo, in order to destroy the things that are. See, the things that seem to exist in the world, those intellectuals, the rich, the powerful, all those things are in fact passing away and doomed for destruction. It's interesting, Paul in Romans chapter 4 calls God the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. He speaks into nothing. Just as in the original creation, there was nothing, and God spoke the world into existence. Well, it's the same way in our callings. It's the same way when the, power, when the message of the cross is proclaimed, God creates faith out of nothing. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We have nothing to bring uh, uh, to, to impress God, or there's nothing for, for God to use. He calls into existence the things that do not exist through the preaching of the gospel as he creates faith and makes new creatures in him. And he does this so that no human being, or literally no flesh, might boast in his presence. That, that term flesh that the Apostle Paul uses refers to what humankind in its fallen state can produce. Even the best of what we can, do, can produce at the end of the day is flesh. And, and God wants nothing of that. And none of that can boast. And so at the end of the day, as we stand before the throne of God, none of us can pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm here because I made a good choice. None of us can boast because God uses nothing to make something. And ultimately, it's because of him, in verse 30, it's because of the grace of God that we are in Christ Jesus. And here's the good news. It's not just that you're a nobody and God has called you, but the idea is that you are a nobody and yet God has made you a somebody in Christ Jesus. And that's the point there in verse 30 when he says, who became to us wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Here the Apostle Paul talks about our new status as new creatures in him. In the second letter that he writes to them, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And this is who you are. The world may look at you as a nobody. You may be low and despised. You may not have wealth or power, or prestige, or earthly glory, or praise from man. And yet when God looks at you in Christ Jesus, what does he see? He sees the wisdom of God. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the sanctification. He sees the redemption that Christ has earned for us by giving his life as a ransom for many. That's who we are in God's eyes. So the Apostle Paul sums up his argument, or sums up the chapter, with another Old Testament quotation, introducing that quote in verse 31, saying, it is written, and here he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, which I think would be fitting for me to read in its full context. It says, starting in verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love 
and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It's human nature for us to drop names. If we can't be rich and powerful and famous, maybe it's good if we know somebody who is. Oh, did you see who I, uh, did you notice who I saw? Did you see who I appeared with the other day? We like to drop names. And we think people are impressed by that. Paul says, if you're going to drop any names, drop this name, God. If you're going to boast, if you're going to glory, glory in the fact that you know the creator of the universe as your only blessedness and reward. That you know that God is a God who is full of love and mercy, and he has given you his righteousness in Christ Jesus. That's what we can boast about. That's what we glory in. That's why we're here today, to be reminded that we know God through the suffering of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you have put to nothing the wisdom of this world, that you have thwarted the understanding and discernment of the flesh. Thank you that you have saved us through this powerful message of the cross and that you have given us life through your death. Thank you also that you give us your Holy Spirit and unite us to yourself and to the Father through him and that you call us now to take up our cross and follow after you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us always to remember our true identity in you. May we not rely or boast upon our own strength, but only upon the strength and power which comes through you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.